Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by John Agricola, the new managing editor of Southern Culture on the Fly. We talk carp, tarpon, Southern storytelling, the Dauphin of Mississippi, and scoff past, present, and future. Folks, grab a RC colon and a moon pie for this one. But before we get to interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And also wanted to give you a heads up on a multi-part nymphing series I'm working on with Jason Randall. We cover getting your flies in the zone, getting a good drift, and improving strike detection. We recently released our second episode with more to follow every two weeks or so. Check them out to see how you can win a TFO stealth rod and reel combo with a scientific angler's urinimping line. Now, on to our interview. Well, John, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Hey, Marvin. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Man, what a great one to start with. Uh, my family used to have some uh, property on the Tennessee River, and my grandfather uh, was an Episcopal priest, and so he had a really generous spirit. And I don't know if you knew this, but Sand Mountain is really close to Lake Gunnersville. And uh, there's a, it's a really unique regional subculture on Sand Mountain. You've got Dennis Covington's Salvation on Sand Mountain. And, you know, imagine Pentecostalism as a part of that world. Uh, and there were two individuals that my grandfather was trying to help. And they set up a trailer on our uh, very nice lake house property that had been in the family since the 30s when the river was dammed. Uh, and we bought it at auction. Um, and the name of the, the two, the, the couple, was Bossy and Flossy. And Bossy uh, loved to fish with crickets and worms. He would noodle for, for worms. And he loved eating brim. Uh, so I remember being an ankle biter and being at his knee, basically. And uh, he's ripping in bluegill from the uh, beds that were around the houses. And every time he uh, he caught one, he was deaf. I, f- I forgot to tell you. Uh, so his voice was uh, somewhat broken at times. and it sounded very gruff because he had no, not as much control of it as a person that's not hearing impaired. Uh, and so I, he did not hear me throwing the bluegill back into the water behind, uh, as he was putting them in the bucket. And I got a tongue lashing for my early catch and release practices. So that was probably my earliest fishing memory. Uh, that and competitive bluegill catching with my cousin. Uh, there you go. So when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? Uh, it was around the time that I realized that I hated rat's nests more than anything. And I thought that the, the reel was uh, a lot simpler uh, catching bluegill with a popper than throwing a bait caster to uh, largemouth. So I never really got into 
conventional fishing. In fact, I never really learned how to do it. And everyone will scoff at that, but uh, it was a conscious choice to be somewhat of a purist uh, to the point of ridiculousness. Like even when there's no chance of catching something with a fly rod, I'm still throwing a damn fly rod. I don't know why, but it's it's about being stubborn and unwilling to uh, to sometimes catch fish, I guess. I mean, I'd rather put myself in a situation where I can enjoy that the bend of a fly rod uh, rather than horsing a fish in, I guess. Um, and, and really to delve into that more, the psychosis of it, um, I knew that my grandfather that was helping these people was also a fly fisherman and I wanted to be just like him. And I knew he wasn't, he wasn't throwing worms. Um, but that, that was uh, a choice that I made early on was to always be throwing a fly rod. So at about age 13 or 14, uh, I picked it up and never looked back. Yeah, very neat. And, uh, you know, who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you? Yeah, um, I have to say Frank Roden is one of the most important mentors in my life. He's a really awesome individual that uh, maybe some people are aware of, uh, but he's he's like a dynamo in Gadsden for fly fishing culture. He's He's been making a fly shop work for the last probably 25 years in uh, Gadsden, Alabama. And, you know, he, he was doing carp fishing when Barry Reynolds was doing carp fishing. You know, it was something that, you know, he had a huge boat, um, a red fisher, I think. And he would take me into the backwaters on the Coosa river and show me how to catch carp. And, um, he wouldn't show me his striper spots, which I, I still, uh, wish he would, but, uh, I found some of those later in life. Um, but he was just a really dynamic person in that, uh, he was also an antique store in his fly shop and he, you know, he really took me under wing as one of the few guys that was working in Gadsden, uh, for carp and stuff. He would always, if he had a customer come in, he would show my card and, uh, that kind of thing. And introduced me to the little fly fishing club that's in rainbow city, which is close to Gadsden. And, uh, he, he really ran the whole thing. Uh, he was always the one bringing sodas to it. Um, you know, it has its issues like all fly fishing clubs do, but it's, uh, it was like a, an, a kind of way to meet other people in the area that were doing it, that were older, wiser and more established. There was one member of that club named Shannon McCurley that, um, helped me navigate Gunnersville and also some red eye fisheries, uh, in North Alabama. Uh, little river Canyon was one spot that he got it at. He was, his service was, was called North Alabama fly fishing. And, uh, I don't think he, he's still operating. Uh, I think his business life is too rigorous, but, uh, 
before I knew how to tease the bass onto the fly, he was he was teaching me that you got to make it pop, you know. And uh, and I always will appreciate the times that he took me out and worked with me on my cast and things like that. Uh, Gary Taylor had a really impactful presence in my development as somebody that wanted to be in the industry about eight or nine years ago. He was, uh, I don't know if he still is. He might be still a TFO ambassador, but, uh, at the time he was, and, uh, he helped me understand that, you know, you can't, you can't be afraid of guiding when there's competition of other guides, you know, you just have to be the best guide that you can be. And also that, um, you know, there were, there was a time when, when it was more, uh, more, there was a, a greater preponderance of anglers on the water. And that was at the time of the a river runs through it coming out. And I think if I remember correctly, he said it was more like a river ran over us. And, and in that m- historical moment, you know, there was so much more pressure than even today, uh, or at least that's what he said eight years ago. It may be that now it has grown to be even more than then but you know it was it was encouragement to that you can you can write down what you're best at and uh if it's fly fishing and you can't see yourself doing anything else then uh you can try to make it work and sometimes it does yeah i think his i think his drift boat is actually in the fly fishing museum uh in bryson city it is actually, and and that was that was coming that was coming when I uh, shared those stories with him back then. Uh, I don't think he had done it yet, but I, I guess he has now. I would love to get up to that uh, museum uh, in Bryson City. Is is it Cherokee or Bryson City? It's in Bryson City, and they're actually I think they're in the process of uh, building a new building for it. Oh wow! Yeah. Man. But it's interesting too. You talk about Gary. I mean, I've known Gary for ages, but I can, I think when I think about him, I always think about that uh, video he did back in the day with Davey Watton. Oh, I hadn't seen that. Oh, it's about uh, basically. I think it's about fishing wet flies, and it's like ninety minutes. Um, it's, oh, wow. it's back. Cool. It's the same people that like did. I think it was like Fly Fish TV. It was like you know all the movies with Kelly and. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, you'll, cool. Yeah, you'll have to check that out. But uh, yeah, I will. Yeah, that's interesting about Gary. Anybody else? Uh, as far as fly fishing, uh, it, my father was pretty impactful in the sense that he would discourage me from picking up the baitcaster. I mean, he would literally shame me if I had baitcaster friends coming to the house and throwing baitcasters. So uh, going on Bahamian adventures with him and his friends when I was like 20, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. And, uh, it continued, maybe we went four or five times. In fact, in the last issue of the magazine, I did a musky story with, uh, about my father and we had meant to do a, uh, a follow-up, uh, volume two in the Bahamas, but, uh, he caught COVID and then it just it, it was up in the air, so we ended up going another way. But it's all in the magazine. And just backtracking just a, a hair, uh, the interview that I did with Gary Taylor, we're hoping to to rework a little bit and 
and maybe present it in either YouTube form or potentially uh, put it somewhere in the magazine because it was that it was that uh, good a conversation that we'd like to bring it back. So yeah. that's a kind of a teaser. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of neat. And so, of course, you know, um, if folks don't know where Gadsden, Alabama is, it's in kind of like north central Alabama. Um, that's not, right. Yeah, not exactly trout territory. So what's your favorite species to chase on the fly? Well, uh, going back to not being trout territory, that Frank Roden fellow that I mentioned, he's done there's – a, there's a waterfall with very cold water in Gadsden. And he's done a lot of tourist uh, come fish Black Creek uh, type stuff for hatchery trout that he's put in uh, put in in Gadsden. So we've got stripe and carp and trout, and you know it's sort of the best best of all worlds in some ways. Um, but stay away. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the question that you ask is is about what now? I'm sorry. Oh, it's all good. It's uh, what's you know you, you don't really. I mean, I would still say you don't really live in trout territory. So you know what's no, your not at all. yeah. So what's your favorite species to chase on the fly? Oh, okay. Uh, in the last decade, it has become tarpon. Uh, I just got eat up with it and uh, have not been very successful other than the second cast I made to one and a couple of other times. But uh, ever since that first fish that I got to the boat, it's been sort of like an addiction that I would compare to uh, more nefarious things that I've done in my life, like chasing the dragon or something. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you, you have this certain amount of time on the bow and it's like sort of, everything is in finite terms. You know, you only have so many shots, so many minutes, uh, so many opportunities to chase tarpon. So that makes it a difficult question that you ask because, uh, you know, I, carp are much more rewarding in that I'm in that obsession longer. Uh, more, there's more time spent in Gadsden chasing carp than uh, that one week a year that I get to go tarpon fishing, and I'm hoping it, it becomes more with the the magazine's role in my life. Yeah, so I, I guess if I were, if you had one day left in your life to fish, it sounds like you'd go tarpon fishing. Yeah, no doubt, <laughs> no doubt. Overbound fishing and everything else. Yeah. And so also I wanted to kind of know, right. I mean, we've talked multiple times before the interview and uh, spent some time together at the Atlanta fly fishing show, you know, where did your love of literature and storytelling and writing come from? Uh, well, my mom, uh, has published two books of poetry, uh, through the Ohio review. And, uh, She's actually done three, I think, but uh, not through only two were through the high review. Um, and so she is can can cut me to the quick with her words and has become one of my best editors. Uh, and so that relationship with her uh, was important to developing 
my love of story. Um, but then, you know, leaving the nest a little bit, I, I went to graduate school in Wyoming and, uh, one of the future contributors and he wrote the haiku in the last issue. Uh, his name is Duff, his name is Jason Burge, but he, his band name is Dauphine of Mississippi. And, uh, we were both in this graduate school situation of working for the Wyoming Humanities Council in the shadow of Lynn Cheney. Uh, and, you know, it was like, it was like I was learning to review grants. That was my role as an intern. This is about 2008. And, uh, you know, what happened from there is me and Jason realized that we were both Southern and that we were both football fans. He was a Mississippi State fan. I was an Alabama fan. And so we had we had people to watch the game with where people actually cared about SEC football. He and his coterie of writing friends, he was in an MFA program there in creative writing and was a student of Brad Watson, who was a very uh, well-respected uh, Southern writer, uh, won the Harper Lee Award a couple of years ago. And, He's written a number of books, maybe four books total. He died a couple of years ago. Um, but he was, Jason was his favorite student, I believe. Uh, at least that's the relationship that I observed when we would go pheasant hunting and fly fishing the Miracle Mile. And, you know, seeing them talk about stories, you know, just campfire stories. Uh, I, I learned that being observant, but also being concise with the way you tell a story is very important to the listener. Uh, and so talking about the mechanics of, of what goes into a good story, how do you create tension? Uh, how, how do you manufacture a conflict? If, even if one isn't there, um, you know, elements of a story were talked about. And for me, I was, I was an American studies graduate student. So I was more on the scholarly end of things, thinking about regional identity. Uh, I found that it was a good way to just fish and not worry about my academics so much uh, to write about the South because nobody at the University of Wyoming specializes in the South in the same way that they do, say, Ole Miss. Um, so I could kind of, being a Southerner, I could kind of bluff my way through shit and, uh, excuse my language, but, uh, you know, it was like, I don't know. Uh, I wanted to do creative nonfiction but I, I wasn't exactly sure how to get where Jason was in terms of being an MFA program. You had to be a little bit more serious than I was in 2008. Um, and I still didn't exactly know. So I ended up applying and getting a duplicate graduate degree in not American studies, but Southern studies. And that was, that was in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, 
Brad Watson that I mentioned earlier was a student of Barry Hanna at uh, Alabama. And so, like, it was kind of like that became another model for how I wanted to write was uh, the Barry Hanna model. And, you know, he was, I think he had passed away uh, by the time I was in Oxford. I'm pretty sure he had. Um, But digging through some of his old works like airships and Geronimo Rex, um, it was a good way to kind of see how good gritty literature should be done. Uh, and so that's those Southern, uh, sort of writers that, that are deified in the literary canon of Southern writing in the modern South were important. Like Larry Brown was another one, another influence that came in Oxford, um, And then there was the whole sort of uh, host of fishing writers because I was already obsessed with fishing. So then over the next five years after Southern Studies, I was exploring things like Paul Scullery and, uh, you know, uh, Tom McGuane, John Harrison later, much later. how rains, and and these were, these were things that I was doing because I was trying to establish myself as a scholar in something. And there was a, there was a professor at Ole Miss that had written a book called Subduing Satan that was about uh, hunting. And uh, it was sort of, uh, a book that's thesis was sort of like, you know, in the South, evangelical culture is so strong and so profoundly relevant that one of the few places of escape is the outdoors uh, because you get this kind of pass for uh, being there. And so subversive things like gambling take place in the woods, and, you know, just betting your neighbor that I get the, I get the, turkey first in a turkey radio or something, you know, things like that, you know, so I put him and I put my editor at large now and, uh, and it, and a, uh, a historian, an environmental historian in a three person lecture series called Alabama rigged, which was a play on, uh, on that big umbrella uh, rig that conventional fishermen throw to simulate a school of fish. And, you know, I, we did a lecture series in Florence and Gadsden and Gunnersville. And I, I tried to drum up support for it by uh, getting my fly fishing club members and friends to come and other, other people in the public. So I got a little bit of experience marketing and advertising for uh, a program that I had written a grant to the Alabama Humanities Foundation for. And we did an exhibit on antique lures in these museums that was rotating. And uh, that was uh, that was how I got into to some of the fishing writing, was sort of trying to do my homework for that. I didn't read Isaac Walton, but Steinberg told me all about it, so... I felt like I knew about it, you know. 
Yeah. And so you you mentioned that you're attracted to creative nonfiction. You know, what is it about that genre that kind of drew you in? Yeah. Um, creative nonfiction is a, is a lot more like fiction than people know. Because the same uh, sort of uh, aspects of a, of a story are, you know, it's like, you, you still have to communicate in a way that is full of clarity and lu- like lucid thoughts and sort of, uh, but there, you know, fiction and, and nonfiction, they, they sort of go together more than people think. I, I think, uh, I'm trying to think back to my MFA at Swanee studying of that, I, I kind of dropped out of that program in order to buy the magazine. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on my training, but John Jeremiah Sullivan, whose father was a, uh, a horse rider in uh, Lexington. He wrote about uh, thoroughbred horses. And so um, my teacher, John Jeremiah Sullivan, uh, wrote his first book. It was called, uh, blood horses i think and uh he wrote a book called pulphead that was a collection of essays that was about music and popular culture and southern agrarian writers that lived in swanee and that was my first creative nonfiction class was in in his uh classroom that was actually a virtual classroom because it was the first year of covid and uh you know, it was, it was fascinating to look at how uh, Joan Didion wrote or uh, John McPhee wrote or um, other nonfiction artists um, like, I'm trying to think who else wrote, some of the confessional stuff, uh, like uh, the Hashish Eater. Um, I don't know. It, it, was, it was really cool because I could... I know that what I do is creative. I don't want to say that it's not creative, but I'm not imagining things that didn't actually happen. So it's a different competency in that respect. You know, it's like, um, I experienced something and you know, when you have a good story because you know, the ending of it, or, you know, a good way to begin. So, uh, yeah, uh, we, I think it's a little bit harder to be a fiction writer, or it is for me anyway. Uh, I don't really understand that practice as well. But when things in your mind are humming and you got to get it on, onto the page, uh, and it's something from the observed world, you know, I think I think you know you got to get it out, and that's that's sort of creative nonfiction. Yeah, and, and you know, so uh, you kind of told us a little bit earlier about kind of how you started to kind of break into kind of the professional slash outdoor writing game. Do you remember the first piece that you got paid to write, and how it made you feel to get it published? Yeah, it was so important in my life because it happened in 2017. Uh, my wife was about to give birth in the next couple of months. And uh, 
I had nothing going at the time. I mean, I was, I had done this academic project of Alabama rigged and, uh, I had done a story that I started shopping around a little bit. The first story I ever shopped around, I heard back from Tom Baugh, uh, and it wasn't because the story was knock your head off great writing. It was just such a good gimmick. Um, it was, it was the sheepy tournament in 2017. I had a, a buddy named Dingle. His name is Don Engel. So we call him Dingle. And he became this like, kind of like Dr. Gonzo figure within the story. Um, but we just, we, we were w- way outmatched in terms of our knowledge of the marsh. And uh, even, even my boat was, not equipped for the kind of waves that we were in. I think I still have cracks on my transom from, from that adventure, but, uh, we, uh, we did not catch any sheepy, but there were only three fish caught in the entire tournament, even among the best guides in New Orleans. Um, so that, that gives you an idea of the, the level of, uh, difficulty in that, in that particular wind weekend. Um, but yeah, I, I wrote this story, and it had some of the actors that would later become heavy hitters within New Orleans for fishing. Miles LaRose was one of the characters because um, he was a tournament promoter, and I think Tom really just wanted to have some uh, vignette into that uh, sheepy tournament, and it's the only reason that that I. Uh, uh, got that story through because I was an I was an unknown variable at that point. I hadn't published anywhere, and uh, over the next, I guess, until this fall, I, I published maybe seven stories, seven or eight stories with the Drake, uh, and it was everything from the Lost Cause Monument in Gadsden. Emma Sansom is actually a guide in the 19th century for car to uh, some of the red eye uh, revolution that's happening in Alabama. We, we did a lot with that over the years and uh, it was really just, I became a freelancer and at the same time to support the family and get insurance, I was teaching at an evangelical school, much to my Anglican chagrin, I guess. Um, and so I was, I was writing in the evenings, uh, stay up late, write a story, spin a yarn, put it in the drawer and come back to it. Um, I did that all last year while I was working at the public school. I ended up leaving the evangelical school later, uh, because they didn't pay as well as the public school, but the public school presented new problems and. So I started a blog. Um, I wrote about 60 stories last year with a lot of manic energy that my job was going so poorly. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend that much time editing them. I think my better works are the ones that I, I'll spend a lot of time editing. But these were just kind of like, you know, it might be a one-off something that's not connected to anything. 
And I don't spend that much time editing and I just put it out into the world and kind of get tough about my uh, sensitivity to being perfect, you know, or as perfect as I can make something. Uh, because I was trying to build a, a readership. Um, and and so, I, you know, I got about 150, 200 readers in that year, but that wasn't enough. I wanted wanted more. So, yeah, it's interesting too, John, because I always like to ask creatives and, and writers in particular, since we're talking about writing, you know, it sounds like, do you like to have a regular time to write? Is that how you do it? Mm -hmm. Or do you like to write yeah. in spurts? And does it differ based on kind of the medium that you're trying to write for? Yeah. Um, if it's a piece that I'm trying to publish in the Flyfish Journal or the Drake, I'm going to work on it in the morning, at night, whenever I can find time. But generally, my best writing happens uh, at night after the wife and kid went to bed. Um, I'll, I'll write till 2 o'clock in the morning sometimes, 3 o'clock in the morning if I'm on something that seems to be a good story. It's just, uh, you know, there's always these, like, elisions kind of when you do that where it's like, that doesn't land with the reader uh, because you didn't set it up right or something. So then I'll realize that maybe I'll send it to my mom and she'll check it out. Maybe I'll send it to Jason. He'll check it out. Somebody's going to tell me I didn't understand this part or I'm going to discover that I didn't understand that part. And, you know, when you're a writer, you sort of have a community of trusted readers around you. And those are the people that, uh, help you make magic happen, or at least a semblance of uh, of black magic. <laughs> there you go. And uh, you know, what do you think is the secret to being an effective storyteller? Um, sensitivity to uh, to your subjects, I think. It is, uh, it's kind of like you have to know that your audience could be anybody. And so if you're, if you're a jerk and, and you're, you're not thinking deeply about a character that's in your story, if you're not thinking like, what is the humanity of that person? Um, you know, what, even if, even if they seem like, you know, a diabolical mayor that owns a, a strip club, you know, they're, they're, they're still maybe a family man, you know, there's, there's a larger, uh, or there's a greater layer of, uh, universality within that character that you have to uncover. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I guess what I would, I guess my follow-up to that would be, so, you know, that's a really, rare skill, right? And we could go down an absolute mm -hmm. rabbit hole talking about how if people spent more time trying to understand everybody else, the world would be a better place. Uh, yeah. But, you know, did did that come naturally to you or was that a skill that no. you had to cultivate? That was cultivated and it came from, uh, I have a, a good friend that's a better reader than me. Uh, she did a MFA at Warren Wilson. Her name's Jody. 
anyway, she, she sometimes reads my work and she's criticized me often for, you know, that you're, you're basically mansplaining here or whatever, you know, it's, um, having that, that, that secondary reader helped me to understand that sometimes I'm too quick or, and I want to get better at that, you know, um, especially when it comes to advertising, because if you're, if you're a jerk and everybody can see that, then uh, nobody's going to want to read you. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, you're kind of, I guess uh, you've been kind of trying to juggle and you kind of flip the switch to uh, trying to make it as a full-time creative, you know, what is the greatest challenge you've found so far? Uh, convincing my wife that anybody cares about Southern culture on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that just, that comes from the fact that uh, in Gadsden, we're not, you know, we're, it's not Asheville, you know, I mean, she doesn't go to the shows with me. She doesn't see that um, there's, a, there's people that have followed Grossman and Seinberg for over a decade. And uh, she doesn't understand the opportunity that I now have. And she, she won't listen to this podcast. So it seems like I'm just a derelict of my parental duty sometimes because I'm trying to trying to make meaning in a story or make meaning in this career. And it's like, you know, it's all, it's all that I think about when I wake up. It's all that I think about when I go to bed. And uh, it's sort of the entrepreneur's struggle. And uh, it's, it's a struggle that you walk by yourself sometimes. I'd say that's the hardest thing about it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because, I mean, I've been, you know, in Charlotte for a pretty good while and certainly pre, pre-scoff pre and saw scoff grow. And, I mean, you know, there was um, – and talked to Dave about this when he was on the uh, on the podcast. You know, that er, those early days of scoff, there was an incredibly vibrant fly fishing community in western North Carolina, east Tennessee, and upstate South Carolina. Um, right. And it was um, – it was really a, a a thing, and you really saw the community, right? And you know, you had like um, the Fiberglass Manifesto blog. You had the Scoff guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, you still have Crooked Creek Holler. You know, there was a really active culture around the Western North Carolina Fly Fishing Expo. Um, yeah. You know, it's a little bit different now because you know even scoffers get older. Um, mm-hmm. But that community is still there. I mean, you and I talk about it all the time. Right. Right. And. <sighs> We're hoping to re-engage those other sub-regions. Uh, you know, in fact, um, we're working on some tour-type things that, that may come next fall. I don't want to say too much about it because it's still early goings of planning. But, you know, when Dave Grossman or Steve show up at a party in, in, a, in the fly fishing world, you know, that's the party that people want to be at. And we want it to be like that, too. Uh, for us, you know, uh, in putting this group together, that was certainly one of the considerations that I had when I picked a, a, a player or a partner in the group. And we don't take ourselves very seriously, like, uh, that we're ever gonna, you know, 
uh, start a fishing revolution, but we, we do want to stay true to the countercultural principles of Dave and Steve. And so we're going to do that to the best of our ability in party format. Like I was talking to somebody tonight about potentially doing uh, a, a party that certain members like we could go, we're just trying to figure out how to do it, but at headquarters, you know, we could have bands and do like a dang Bonnaroo for scoffers. You know, it was just an idea, but um, might be fun. Yeah. I think back in the day they used to have potlucks. Yeah. Yeah. Potluck. So, so, you know, if people don't know and they haven't connected the dots yet, uh, you're the new editor and publisher of Southern culture on the fly. And I was really kind of curious about, you know, if you could share with us why you wanted to buy the magazine, but also just, you know, a little bit about the whole process of like how it came up and buying the magazine from Dave and Steve. Sure. So uh, I wanted to buy the magazine because, the, you know, Dave has become a good friend in the last four or five months, as, as good a friend as you can have as a new friend. Uh, I still talk to him weekly. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's good for bounce ideas off of. But going back to when I was in Oxford uh, in the Southern Studies program, when Scoff began, they were just, I feel like, you know, in, in my early stage of caring about fly fishing writing, I was going, damn, they, oh, sorry, they beat me to the punch, you know. I, that's such a cool idea to call something Southern culture on the fly. And, and, and you could house stories under that and and like the potential was always there in fact when i was thinking about buying it i uh i found an early message that i sent to them from like 2015 and it was uh it was a story that i had pinned and wanted them to put in the magazine but i was like yeah, i think it was on facebook because maybe I wasn't far enough along in my social media presence to have an Instagram account yet. But I have this message to Dave and Steve that I found after we had done the, the deal with them. Uh, and I was like, man, I was, I was caring about that organization from the beginning. And it's so cool that we found a way to bring it into our, our ownership because you know, it'll never be the same entity or the same organism that it was with them. Like, we, we don't have, I mean, not many people are as genius as Steve is when it comes to photography. Dave has a certain writing style that uh, is is a really, you know, hard one to approach as, as a writer. But, you know, he, he's got a little bit different style than me, you know, so... I'm totally good with uh, being hoping to keep their readership, but also uh, continue to grow it from a larger regional standpoint by doing things that maybe they maybe they were a little bit timid about doing. Like, what does it mean to be Southern? What is uh, how do we imagine ourselves as Southern? Can something be Southern if it's just globally uh, part of the globalization process? You know, there's there's so many different ways to see the South in the world. And 
So that's going to hopefully reimagine and expand what we can do as an organization. Um, would you steer me back in any kind of way? Oh, uh, well, I, yeah, that's really neat. And then I guess, you know, you mentioned um, you've got some partners in crime at the magazine. You want to tell us a little about them and what they do? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the first person I called about wanting to buy the magazine, when I saw the penultimate issue, that's when it, it, it became something that I thought might be possible um, because I understood what that word meant. And I knew that there was finality coming and that really kind of bummed me out, you know, because I enjoyed getting that email, you know, every quarter. And, um, I knew that I had some skills as a writer, but I knew that Hank Hershey, who's our creative director is, I mean, Hank's a genius. I mean, he can do, um, business, sort of stuff that I can't do. He can do graphic design. He can do art and he's a PhD in fish biologies. So like really dynamic Renaissance type person in Hank Hershey, who's um, our creative director. And then at a carp cup that I went to in about 2016 or maybe 18, I met uh, Sam Bailey. And Sam Bailey is just an awesome guy. I mean, he's super affable, great personality. He used to have a fly shop in Huntsville. That was his first real foray into the fly fishing world. Um, and so I knew he understood the gear in a way that I didn't want to take the time to devote to as, you know, I don't, I don't have to be everybody, you know, like if we have, a desire to create a good product and we have more hats on it. I think, I think that's going to make us uh, stronger in the long run, but maybe not as profitable uh, for individual sakes. But, you know, in the early goings, we're like, you know, let's figure out how we can put our uh, very diverse skill sets together. And, and then there's uh, professor Flyfish, uh, Mike Steinberg, who, he had come on board with me at the Alabama rigged uh, cultural history project as a speaker. And uh, he's from Missouri, uh, but has lived in Alabama for maybe 15, 20 years. Uh, he's a professor at the university of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. He does uh, mangrove studies and kind of GIS work in, uh, in Belize a lot and Honduras and Nicaragua. So he's often on these field course trips with students to places where maybe there's bonefish right next to his, uh, where they're staying. You know, it's like there's a flat next to the tents or houses. I don't, I don't exactly know what their house or tent situation is, but uh, he takes a science geography class uh down there every summer so i knew he would be great he had been in the original scoff he wrote a, a cuban uh tarpon story where he was fishing uh roll casting into c notes and notes uh and that was like uh i think that's the issue where uh dave is wearing it's a cartoon bra 
that he's wearing uh, on the cover of the magazine. Uh, so Mike Steinberg is in that issue. I think it's 2017, maybe fall. But anyway, those those are the guys. I mean, we've become great friends in the last three months or four months. Yeah, since we've been doing this. Yeah, that's really neat. And you know, folks just see the issues, but. Um, I thought it would be interesting uh, since you've got an issue under your belt to kind of share with us how the sausage is made and kind of what it takes yeah. to birth an issue. Sure. Well, we inherited the work ethic of Dave and Steve in the sense that they would like, they like to meet a weekend before the issue was put out. And we went in November to Asheville to see how they made their sausage. And, uh, you know, it was it was really cool to see them working on the last issue in person. Um, but we didn't really adopt that particular modality in our in our style. Uh, we still meet the weekend before, but we're sort of more spread out in a way. Uh, the first issue that we put out, we did meet at Steinberg's house in Birmingham because he has more reliable internet than. We have it headquarters at the current time, and that's not because we're uh, podunk. It's because it's a pretty kind of rustic farm situation there. Um, and, you know, we, it's just kind of rural Internet is hard to find. You know, I don't know. Uh, so I've been using my hotspot on my phone, and we'll have to do that in future endeavors uh, because Steinberg's going to Belize this summer. and. Uh, so I don't think we're going to meet at his house this time. We've been put, I mean, the issue's probably halfway made right now, uh, maybe seven, 75% made. Uh, I've seen a draft of it. It's it's going to be really good. I, I think it's better to spread out your creative energies over a longer amount of time. So we've got this group text that we would, you know, we would never want to get out because we would be seen as degenerates for the things that come up there. But uh, it is, uh, it's a really kind of creative space where we're, we're spitballing ideas constantly. And so like the people that have jobs, which is everybody, but me and Hank, uh, you know, Hank's job is to be a full-time PhD candidate um but and he's also got the bait shop too i forgot about that the bait shop is like kind of a place for thoughtful outdoorsmen but anyway uh we're just we're just always spitballing and i i do my writing put it in the waffle and then hank uh does the artistic design of the layouts um Mike does the same thing with his stories. He just puts them in the waffle. And Hank is a master with InDesign, so it's been uh, it's been good so far. Yeah, pretty neat. I know it's early days, but what has been the biggest challenge for you guys so far? Um, I think the biggest challenge is that we want to be kind of like this uh, laid back kind of. Uh, non-type A group, but there are, I mean, we're kind of all type A's, but the management structure of the group 
is that we are all equal partners. So uh, I did that because I thought it would be better for getting the best work of, out of everybody. So we're kind of all on the honor system that, you know, um, that you're going to do your best work and you're going to try your best. And, you know, so that gives everybody a greater interest than they would have had ordinarily based on their investment level. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, you've got one issue under your belt. I think you're going to drop another issue probably like a week before Memorial Day weekend, give or take. Can you uh, give yeah. give folks a little bit of a sneak peek into the next issue? Sure. Uh, ex- expect really uh, strong writing and images, like better than the first issue. Um, we're, we're doing a thematic uh, kind of projection of what is, what is grace and uh, how does it function in the life of everyone? And our, our album uh, of choice, you know, is uh, not Elvis, but Elvis, I'll say Elvis is in it. How about that? Uh, there you go. That's awesome. <laughs> Fair enough. And, you know, I know that uh, you're always looking for different voices and kind of different visions. If someone wanted to either contribute writing to the magazine or images, kind of what's that process and what are you looking for? Sure. Uh, we would love to get submissions and 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 work with up-and-coming writers. Um, the best way to do that is to to share with us your uh, idea in a pitch format and uh, maybe list uh, some public publications that that person has been a part of before. And uh, you could even, you could even attach the story and, you know, give us a sample to read uh, and send it to Southern culture on the fly at gmail.com. Uh, well, well, there and, you go. And that's the best way for us to get it. Yeah. And so uh, I know you have kind of a lot of ideas kind of for the future, but are there anything kind of in the near future in terms of events or projects you want to share with our listeners? Um, yeah. So uh, I, I don't the The one that's burning a hole in me is uh, we're doing a Gulf Coast thing. It's a collaboration, hopefully with uh, some some major writers and artists in the fly fishing uh, world. And we're hoping that it's going to happen next fall. It'll be sort of hosted by fly shops and breweries, and it'll be about four different sites. And uh, that's sort of all I can say. Yeah. So better, better follow you guys on Instagram, right? Yeah, follow us on Instagram at uh, Southern Culture on the Fly. Yeah, and so is there anything else I've left out you want to share with folks before I let you go this evening? No, man, this is a fun chat. Thank you. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. And before I let you hop, um, you want to let folks know kind of, I know you've just gave gave out the Instagram handle, and I know we just heard your email address, but you want to kind of put that all nice together about where folks can find you guys, follow you on social media, and all of your adventures on and off the water. Sure. Um, I guess individually, Sam Flawfish at Sam Flawfish is our uh, advertising director. If you have 
you're an advertiser and you're interested in scoff, reach out to him uh, or Hank's Bait Shop at Hank's Bait Shop. It's another one. He, if you're an artist, maybe, uh, and you want to reach out to him, that's how to find Hank. And Professor Flyfish, if you're an aspiring geographer and you want to go to Belize and catch bonefish. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. Uh, Professor Flyfish is the other one. And then I'm at Corp South. Uh, gotcha. And I'll uh, I'll drop all those. I'll drop the email address. I'll drop the website URL and all that kind of good stuff in the show notes. Great. Thank you, Marvin. You betcha. And I appreciate you taking the time. And I wish all of you guys the best of luck bringing the second issue uh, home. Yeah, man. Thank you. Have a good one. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.